Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Welcome to Becoming the Journey. This show will be a series of conversations that will inspire listeners along their life's journey. This show's mission is to cultivate a community of mentorship by sharing our experiences and our life's journey. Nobody's journey is a straight line. So no matter where you are in yours... This show is for you. Meet Grace Lavray. Welcome, listeners. This is Becoming the Journey, and we are about conversations with my guests whose thoughts, experiences, and opinions on topics they are most informed about will resonate with you. You can contact us on Instagram at Becoming the Journey and share what you're thinking or struggling with. Let's dialogue on your views and journey. Today, my guest is Rebecca Brown, and Rebecca is the founder of a vibrant midlife community and powdered supplement range called M Powder, which in uh, which was launched in 2020 as a response to her own journey into menopause, and. From that, I'm going to let you understand that the topic today is menopause. Uh, Rebecca's had quite an eventful young life. Uh, She studied English and drama at university in the UK. Uh, When she got out of university, she was a junior executive on the Labor Party's 1997 election campaign in the UK. She then went on to work on commercial brands like Disney and Visa and Volvo Cars, and created her own brand consultancy, which which she sold, until perimenopause hit. Welcome, Rebecca. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Grace. So, Rebecca, yours is a journey, and let's face it, uh, menopause is inevitable in all women. All women will experience it. Uh, it's not a choice like we talk about in other things. And so your journey, actually, if we can kind of take that in sequence, um, if you're looking back, um, and start with the one question that I've always asked, and that is, when do women start to the dialogue with their gynecologist, OBGYN, about change of life? That's a really good question. Uh, and actually, I, I would say that we it goes way, way, way back um, in terms of when do we start the conversation about female biology. Um, and the reality is that it's not a topic that is taught adequately in school. So most syllabuses uh, here in the UK were quite unusual in that we just legislated as a government to start teaching children about menopause 
in their secondary school years, so from about the age of 11 or 12, all children will now not just learn about fertility, they will learn about the end of fertility and the menopause journey that females will transition through. And I think that's really, really important because if you wait until you're at the beginning of your own menopause journey and having that conversation with a gynae, it's kind of too late. Uh, we need to be harnessing our hormones from the, the point of, of time that we start menstruating. And that does mean then that we're empowered. We understand what our hormones are capable of. We understand what our menstrual cycle enables. We work with it rather than against it. And then as we head into our menopause years, as you point out, it's a life stage that all of us as females will transition through at some point. We're so much better prepared and we're better prepared also to have the conversations with our gynae because we understand when change starts to happen. And the biggest challenge for people today is that perimenopause happens much, much younger than many of us expect. And because we don't understand the symptoms associated with it, we often don't have the conversation at all. And it's only when you get to a point where you're really feeling broken that you may seek medical advice. So you're in a classroom and you're 13 or 14 years old. Mm -hmm. and, and I know you're speaking about doing this in the UK and they've initiated it already. I don't believe we do that in the US. But then again, we lack a lot of different kinds of education that we should be teaching our children in the U.S. Um, how, did, how, how do you think a 13 or 14-year-old will respond, especially in, in a co-gender classroom, um, to sitting there learning about fertility and menopause? I think, you know, it's a sensitive topic. So we know that within the UK anyway, about 75% of females find the topic of menopause taboo. So it has a huge societal shadow over it still. But younger children's minds are much more nimble and much more accepting. And already uh, in the US and the UK, we have sex education classes from secondary school onwards. And really, this is about the extension of that. It's about understanding our sex hormones in their entirety, both in terms of you know, pregnancy and, and childcare, right through to the end of that um, sex, sex hormone journey for women. So I think there's an opportunity to do it in a way that's sensitive and focused on the biology and the differences between females and males and the implications that has in terms of you know, the wellness of our bodies and minds at every stage of life. So I think... You know, it's fair to highlight that there will be some sensitivity, but there's also sensitivity about addressing sexuality full stop. Uh, and I think it's important if we are going to be addressing that, we address that whole life cycle of both, both sexes. Correct. And so, so they're learning it in school, and I'm sure most of them will learn it and forget it because they're young and they're vibrant and they're going on their life's journey. Um, when is it that a young woman should start to talk to their OBGYN about it? Again, really good question. I think our advice would be that from about your mid-30s, your body is starting to shift. So if you don't experience an early um, menopause as a result of surgery or an underlying health condition, you're likely to be heading into perimenopause around the age of 43 in the Western world. So from your mid-30s, you may experience some changes. And 
typically the changes that we see earliest in the perimenopause journey are more associated with, associated with psychological challenges. So it might be that you're just feeling a little bit more anxious, uh, you're struggling to sleep, you may be experiencing what we know to be brain fog when we hit our perimenopausal years, but actually when it's earlier, it can just be trouble forming sentences, trouble holding on to an idea, difficulty kind of digesting and articulating uh, points within the workplace where normally you'd, you'd consider yourself to be able to, to do so. So small little subtle shifts like that are often an early indicator that your hormones are starting to shift, and that's the best time to start talking to your gynae about what medical protocols are available to you, but also what lifestyle changes and nutrition changes can make a big difference to the way that your body transitions. So here, here's the problem there, okay? Practitioners actually lack training in perimenopause and, and, and menopause. Um, there was a study done at the Mayo Clinic they surveyed 183 medical students. 20% received a menopause lecture, and only 7% said they felt prepared to treat women. Women will go to their gynecologist. Maybe, maybe a woman would would get it more than a than a, a male. I'm not disparaging the genders here, but I would think that the tendency might be that they would take in other factors and perhaps going into early menopause would be the last factor. It would be, ah, oh, she's depressed. There's so many other things. Is it because she's having problems at home? Is it because this? Is it because that? How many do you think treat early menopause last on the list? <laughs> it's a really good it's a really good stat and uh, it, it plays out in terms of the broader uh, analysis of training across the world so in the US I believe just 20% of the postgrad gynecologist courses cover menopause as a topic so you have 80% of the gynees operating in the US not having had it as part of their studies um, on a postgrad level um, in the UK, uh, general practitioners here will receive around four hours training in the whole of the seven years of their course uh, on menopause. So you're absolutely right. One of the biggest challenges uh, females have going to talk to a medical practitioner is that medical practitioner may not join the dots for them. Um, and it takes on average three to four visits to the doctor in the UK before menopause is identified as a potential underlying issue for the symptoms that individual has been talking to their doctor about. So it's incredibly frustrating. <laughs> but I would say the positive news, both from the, in, in the US and the UK, is that that is changing. And lots of the work we do as a community is around preparing individuals to go in and have those conversations with their doctor or gynecologist and presenting that doctor or gynecologist with um, tracking data, with information about symptoms that will better enable them to join the dots. It does mean that you as an individual are having to take far more agency for your health in order to kind of bridge that knowledge gap. But it does mean that there are more tools out there for individuals. And I think as a result, actually, doctors and gynecologists are, are finding themselves on the back foot and therefore going off to educate themselves further on, on the life stage. Do you think male doctors have an, a little bit of a problem discussing menopause with women? 
Well, I mean, again, it's a very fair point. And I think, you know, back to that um, statistic that we see uh, in the Western world where 75% of society sees it as a taboo topic, then then that would mean probably yes. <laughs> um, it is an uncomfortable um, conversation. I think the larger um, issue, which is true for all stages of female um, life and female health, is the assumed... Um, trivialization of certain um, symptoms that are considered to be only experienced by females and you know the research will show that we are less likely to get um, proper treatment or care when we present ourselves in accident emergency wards because we are assumed to be exaggerating pain or exaggerating symptoms as females so I think the issue around um, perhaps being uncomfortable with topics that are related to female biology is true but there's also perhaps sometimes a dismissal of symptoms, particularly around menopause, when many of them can feel psychological. And historically, women will talk about sort of presenting themselves in surgery and being told that this is just ageing. This is just something you have to get through. You know, my mother went through menopause and she didn't need any medication. And so it's almost as if we're making a fuss. Uh, and this is a natural life stage that we should just be able to endure. Whereas actually, you know, the dangers are that post-menopause, females are at heightened risk of certain diseases that are totally addressable if we get the support and the tools around us at an earlier stage. So it's actually really critical that doctors and gynecologists do take this life stage seriously because it has an impact on our long-term health. I mean... I mean it in the normal course of events in a woman's life, yes, um, they'll go through perimenopause and then menopause, and we all expect it. We we just expect it maybe from the age of 40 on, but that's not always true. I mean, there are women who experience it much earlier. There are women who have gone mm. through cancer treatment that um, that experience menopause when they don't least expect it. Um, so I, I'm thinking that all of this, including freezing your eggs, that's all part of this whole women's health discovery, uh, sh- should be started at perhaps the age of 23, 24. Yeah. Yeah, and you're absolutely right. Around 1% of us will experience an early menopause and that may be as you say to do, to do with um, an underlying health condition it may be so for some people it's thought it could be um, genetic um, but you're right the, the lack of support um, if that is the, the case for you um, is really troubling because we won't necessarily spot the symptoms and we can feel incredibly alone and I think what we see a lot in our community as well is if, if it is a result of an underlying health condition for example if you've had a hormone sensitive cancer the treatment afterwards can often push you um, into an early menopause and the challenge there is you're so grateful to be alive you almost have a survivor's guilt when it comes to then looking to address very debilitating symptoms around menopause because you feel like you almost don't deserve it it is an issue the younger you are I think the more alone you can feel and the less comfortable you may feel complaining about something that feels trivial compared to the fact that you survived a serious illness yeah so let's let's talk about perimenopause, which again can come at any age. We don't know, and and kind of a simplified description of it is a woman's monthly menstrual cycle becomes irregular, starts to become irregular. 
I think it could be three years to more than a decade. I went through it for a decade. Um, you can start with uh, hot flashes, night sweats, uh, depression, and uh, anxiety. I mean, there's so many different symptoms. Um, tell us about your perimenopause journey. That led you, actually, yes. that led you to the company that you launched. Yeah, so for me, which is not atypical, for me, my early perimenopause was dominated by the psychological symptoms associated with menopause. And I think it's important to realize that they are often the early sort of like signals that our body is transitioning. And, and that often happens before our periods become less regular, for example. So I was, as you were saying in, in the introduction, I was running a brand agency. I'd spent my life uh, as a researcher working for big global brands and helping them better understand their consumer databases and, you know, the wants and needs of their customer. And I absolutely loved my job. And over the period of about six months, I went from being confident and, you know, very experienced because I've been doing it since graduation in my own job to feeling absolutely crippled by anxiety. And it got so bad that I would be waking up at five o'clock in the morning, I would be rehearsing the conversations I may need to have in the escalator or in the lift going up to the office because I was so nervous that words would, would escape me and I wouldn't be able to talk properly. I was petrified of presenting. You know, a big part of my job was presenting to, you know, corporate boards and CEOs. I just couldn't, I couldn't find the words. I couldn't remember my research findings. It was truly frightening. It was so frightening that I was convinced I may have early onset Alzheimer's or dementia. And the symptoms were accompanied by what's often called the cluster symptoms of, of perimenopause. Um, so because I was so anxious, I wasn't sleeping. Because I wasn't sleeping, I had more brain fog, more trouble with um, cognition. And that then fed my anxiety. So I was in this awful vicious circle. I was putting on weight around my middle. My hair was falling out. I had terrible hormonal acne. So my skin and my, my, my face was really sore. And obviously all of those things, those external manifestations of hormonal change impact your confidence because you know you look different, you know, and you feel uncomfortable in your clothes. Like about 65% of, of the women in our community, I, I ended up in my doctor's surgery, you know, very worried that there was something very wrong with me. And to your point earlier, Grace, about misdiagnosis, I was told that I was most likely depressed or burnt out. And I think I would have accepted that diagnosis. I would have taken those antidepressant pills. But I had known people who were depressed, and I kind of knew in my heart of hearts that that wasn't what I was experiencing. My mood fluctuated sufficiently for me to feel that there's something else was going on. And I was lucky that I'm a researcher, because really what I then did was research what these symptoms could be, what evidence there was out there. And I came across this word that, you know, this is seven years ago, I hadn't really heard of before. I hadn't heard of the phrase perimenopause, and I consider myself to be relatively well read and interested in wellness and health and yet perimenopause at the time wasn't a phrase being used and it was only really in the medical journals that you could find out about this before menopause state and understand that it actually starts occurring much much earlier than society would have you believe you know I would, I would argue that most women are taught that menopause happens when you're 51 or 52 and as we just discussed that perimenopause phase 
typically is around the age of 43 onwards. And you're absolutely right in terms of your own experience. It can last around 10 years. So I was I was absolutely um, where I, my body should be for my age, and yet my doctor had not joined those dots together. And what happened over the next six months is I was incredibly lucky that I was able to take time off work because I owned the company, so I could gift myself that time to get well. And it was that journey back to wellness, the research I did, my growing interest and curiosity around what I could do personally to take agency for my health that led to the founding of M Powder. Well, I, I truly understand what you went through because, and again, mm -hmm. uh, who knew about perimenopause? You know, everybody just talks about menopause and boom, you go through yeah. it and it's done. But it's actually the perimenopause phase that is where you really experience all of those symptoms or if you're blessed, hopefully none, but... Um, and then menopause is simply menopause. You're done. Yeah, and that's exactly. the way I look at it. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, and I went through the same thing. I mean, uh, luckily I, mm -hmm. I continued working, but I also used to get in front of, or have a board meeting, be on a board and, and all of a sudden the sweat would pour off my face and, and I would be embarrassed. And um, it, it is definitely um, kind of cuts you at the knees. And so I can't, yeah. I mean, I Go think ahead. it's fascinating as well that it happens at a point in our careers quite often, you know, to your experience of being in the boardroom and, and the kind of almost the shame that your body is, is betraying you and not behaving as it should do, um, and and it happens at the pinnacle for many of us of a career that we've fought hard to get to. You know, we've fought hard to get to that board table. We've kind of broken our way through glass ceilings to get there, and then we get hit by this menopause wall. And so many women end up with a strange kind of imposter syndrome. You know, they they begin to doubt their their right to be there. And I think when I think about menopause and and both the opportunity and the challenge we face as females. We're not going to have equality in society. We're not going to have equality in the boardroom unless we can better enable women at every stage of life. And this is, you know, eight to 12 years, a point in a, a female's life when they're actually actively giving as much as they can to society. Um, and if we're not careful, we just fade away. You know, so the stats would suggest that around 10% of us will leave work for good during our menopause years because we don't feel able to perform our roles anymore. And the research in our community would, would suggest that one in five of us actually don't take promotion, don't take that step up because we no longer feel confident that, that our bodies will enable us to do so. So it's a huge loss of talent, wisdom, experience and diversity that we're, we're, we're having as a result of not ensuring that women are able to thrive at all stages of life. And, and all stages, meaning even, even during childbirth. You know, women's yeah. brains are very sensitive to hormones. And, and, and that's what causes mood shifts. That's what causes changes in our bodies. I mean, we're made up of hormones. And so when you're uh, during childbearing years, you go through childbirth, your hormones change, you come back from that, you have another child, you come back from that. 
And it's just like this continuous cycle of ups and downs of hormone changes. And yes, it does take the confidence out of you. Um, and then just when you think you've got it all together, you're in perimenopause. And so um, how how do males, in, in what you do now, I'm sure you've spoken to uh, males about this, how do they react to, I mean, do they understand this? Do they, should they be part of talking to the gynecologist with their significant other spouse um, to truly understand or, or are they just kind of left out in the cold and they think, oh my God, she's, she's on a tear again and, you know, she's moody, she's this, she's that. How much of, how much male participation do you think we should have? Well, I think it is a societal challenge. And I think I think the health and wellness of society depends on us all appreciating the biology of, of the sexes. So I think men absolutely should be part of the conversation. And for the people that I've spoken to um, who've engaged in the topic of menopause, quite often they're incredibly keen to understand how they can better support those they love. You know, if it's not a partner, it's a mother or it's a friend, it's a peer at work. And it's very confusing because if we as women don't understand what's going on with our bodies, it's very hard to articulate to others what's happening. And what we found is one of the most powerful ways to kind of demystify uh, menopause and also sort of debunk the fact that this is somehow just a woman being moody or difficult or, you know, um, all of the stereotypes that come with, with menopause is to show them what is biochemically happening on the inside. So the minute you show somebody, somebody a chart of what happens during menopause, those three biochemical stages and perimenopause particularly, where if you look at what happens to our progesterone and estrogen, it is like a roller coaster. You know, the, the, the peaks and troughs during that period of time in terms of the, the sheer volatility of those hormones and, and to your point, Grace, as well, the fact that those hormones impact every single cell in our body. Everything is driven by that orchestra of hormones. And if two or three, if your sex hormones are out of sync in that orchestra, it plays a really bad tune. And to show that to, to men is a really quick way of removing the emotion, removing the sort of personal feelings you may have to that individual who's making life harder or is making team team meetings more difficult. The minute you show them that, it stops being about that person and it starts being about biochemistry. And, and that's actually outside of our control as individuals. And what we have to do is then learn how you you adapt and, and provide the environment for people to continue to be well. But I think that's a very good way to introduce men. Um, into this dialogue and they absolutely have to be part of it because the more we understand about each other the better we are able to move forward you're listening to becoming the journey on wor 710 iheart radio and i am going to continue my conversation with my guest rebecca brown on the topic of menopause so rebecca going a little bit further in inclusion of of who you include actually in in the discussion if you have children mm -hmm. i mean you know you're raising children you're going through perimenopause do, do you include them also i mean do they need to understand why 
mom is yelling and screaming or mom is in bed and doesn't want to get out or do, do they do they need to understand that also I, I genuinely believe they do. And I think, I think again, it, it stops it being personal. You know, if I think back to my own childhood um, and my mother's transition through menopause, I remember when I started this business and, and she said to me, I don't think I really had menopause. You know, I, I, kind, of, I kind of just, you know, got on with it and pushed on through. And I was, I was like, yeah, but mum, I remember being a young adult and this is a time that you left your job um, because you were depressed. You know, and this is this is a time that things are really difficult at home uh, because you were depressed. And actually, probably she wasn't depressed at all. She was probably in perimenopause, and she was probably misdiagnosed and given antidepressants, and they didn't work because that actually wasn't what her body needed. But during that time, you know, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, that's inevitably what happened to women like my mother. So, as a child, it was quite frightening to find that dynamic with the home change so dramatically because inevitably children sort of fill that void and hold themselves responsible and I think if they're better able to understand and, and if you in your calm moments are better able to explain to them that this isn't about you you know mum's going through some changes her body's changing and sometimes that makes me grumpy sometimes it makes me really tired you know sometimes it means that I have to sleep longer or I need time just to be quiet that's a much healthier environment for a child to spend time in and also understand about biology and about being a grown-up uh, than just feeling like the, the temperature's changed in the room or feeling like the mood and your relationship with your mother has changed. Yeah. So explain to us, and, and your symptoms were really quite uh, radical, um, I don't think everyone experiences all of those things, but touch on some of the things that women should look for uh, in perimenopause, uh, where mm. they may suggest that it is perimenopause to their gynecologist or primary care physician. Yeah, so um, the uh, National Menopause Society and the, the American uh, National um, Menopause Society will point to between 37 and 48 symptoms associated with menopause, uh, and you're actually, oh actually right, Grace. No, not everybody has. <laughs> yeah, not everyone has <laughs> the severity that <laughs> that I experienced, but I think 80% of us will experience some symptoms and and find difficulty during certain periods in our menopause. And it's really important not just to know the symptoms, but also to understand that they will probably change over time. So as I was describing at the beginning, quite often in perimenopause, at the early years of your perimenopause journey, it might be more psychological. You know, you may just feel that you're not quite yourself at the moment. You may be feeling lower, more regularly. You may struggle uh, with brain fog and anxiety, as I did. Um, and then, as you were describing, you may find that your menstrual cycle changes. So you may have longer times between your periods, and you may also have heavier menstruation uh, or flooding, as it's sometimes referred to um, during perimenopause. And those are quite obvious signals that your body is changing and your, your uh, fertility is declining, your sex hormones are changing in terms of the levels within your body. But then it's everything from the hot flashes that I think many of us are familiar with and associate with menopause, mood swings. And mood swings, remember, can also include that feeling of just 
it's almost like extreme um, premenstrual tension. So if you're someone who's struggled before your menstrual cycle, it's likely actually that you will find menopause um, has more of an impact on your mood than someone who's had a menstrual cycle where they don't they don't notice that they have um, PMT, as we call it here in the UK. Um, you'll, you'll, you may also see, as I did, changes to your skin, your hair, your nails. It's now been scientifically proven that menopause will also impact your metabolic rate. So if you're starting to experience weight gain around your middle, um, that can also be a sign that your, your hormones are fluctuating and your body is holding on and storing fat in a different way. And then amongst those 48 symptoms, there are so many. Some of the more unusual ones are things like burning tongue, <laughs> dry eyes, itching skin, um, restless legs. So it's worth familiarising yourself with those lists because although they look awful, um, and this isn't about fear-mongering, knowledge is power. And if you are starting to experience, you know, three or more of them, that probably is an indication that you should have a conversation with your doctor. And I'm going to ask this question, but I, I am assuming perimenopause uh, also causes changes in your sex, sex life, um, some people don't even come back from just, they just kind of lose the desire. Did you find that also? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's a really good comment. So I, I think if we're talking about taboos, and I described earlier the research that pointed to 75% of us feeling uncomfortable about menopause, even more of us feel uncomfortable talking about sex, particularly if you're British. <laughs> um, so you're, you're absolutely right. Our libido is a very complex thing. It's impacted not just by the, the, the decline in our sex hormones, but also the psychological impact of not feeling like you anymore. So if you are struggling with the external manifestation of menopause in that your skin, your hair has changed, you may put on weight around your middle, it's not going to make you feel necessarily comfortable uh, in your own skin. And that can have a very big impact for women in terms of desire and therefore libido um, because the two are intrinsically linked. And if you're not feeling mentally sexual or, or um, sexy, then it can be really hard. And I think the important thing is, I mean, you're right, some people don't recover from it. It, it is a slow decline. And but I think the important thing to remember is that it is addressable. And so many of us, I think, have been almost taught that there are certain things that we just lose in midlife as, and as we move into um, what the Chinese call our second spring. But it doesn't have to be that way. There are so many treatments, actually, that can actually address libido and sexuality uh, for women as they age. So it shouldn't be something we lose. And actually, you know, sex is really good for us. Um, so and, and it's a muscle and it's something we have to continue to practice actually to just to, to almost fuel desire so I think a, a, it's a part of a bigger discussion but a reframing of sexuality and libido as we age is, 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 is needed alongside the way that we view aging because let's not forget menopause is part of the aging process and I think perhaps part of the taboo and the discomfort with menopause is that we as women feel like it's a signal of us getting old and getting old in the Western world is not considered to be an attractive thing. In fact, we spend huge amounts of money trying to avoid it. Um, and that means that it's, it's all tangled up with all of these, these uncomfortable uh, labels. And, and that includes, you know, the right to feel desire as we age. And we absolutely should do. 
And and women, you know, it's funny because, and, and I understand women go through all of that. I don't know anyone who hasn't experienced some portion of all these symptoms that you have said mm-hmm. and some sexual change in their life. And yes, it's, you know, everyone throws it at you. It's it's because you're, you're getting old and, you know, these things happen and these things change. But, and then, and so then we go out and as women and, and we go and we, you know, get a facial, and we do this, and we try mm. the best we can, and then we're told we're vain. <laughs> so, so we we we're kind of damned if we do, and damned if we don't. But um, yeah. my suggestion is, whatever women need to do to feel good, go do it. Yeah. Let's talk a little <laughs> bit about mm-hmm. hormonal treatments. Okay. Mm-hmm. One would be. Uh, the antidepressant, which would would be the common thing that that uh, OBGYNs prescribe, because that's the first thing that they think it is is depression. So women have been put on antidepressants uh, in 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 the past years, um, and they've also been put on hormonal treatments, which was kind of a mm-hmm. formulation of estrogen and progesterone. And then there was a whole big controversy about that causing uh, breast cancer, and so they they kind of didn't go into that anymore. There was a fear, and women didn't want to do it. Mm-hmm. Now, apparently, there are there they are definitely working on uh, different treatments. I understand mm-hmm. Pfizer is working on a drug called uh, Duavi. Um, which combines estrogen with a drug that can block the effect of estrogen on certain parts of the body while turning it on for others. Um, there's also, I think, something called Brex, Brexanolone, uh, which is an injectable drug. There is really nothing on the market that says it. this is it. Talk a little bit about your hormonal treatment, why you think this works, how it works, um, how you're bringing it to the community, and, and what are the treatments? Let's let's yeah. put it simple. What are the treatments? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. So hormone replacement therapy or hormone therapy, I think as it's referred to um, in the U.S., was, I guess badly represented in the press as a result of some very poor research conclusions about 20 years ago now. Um, So there was a big study undertaken uh, with a cohort of women who were older, so they were largely postmenopausal. They had many sort of underlying health factors that can make hormone treatment um, less uh, safe. So uh, weight um, issues, maybe um, high consumption of alcohol, um, and the uh, analysis of the data was, was flawed. So it concluded um, that uh, there was a much higher risk of uh, breast cancer specifically um, as a result of taking hormone treatments. And, and what happened is that this, this uh, research was um, picked up by the media um, and it, over sort of the course of a very short period of time, women just stopped taking hormone replacement therapy because they were frightened. And it's taken a very long time to um, 
reposition um, hormone replacement therapy and also reflect the fact that what hormone replacement therapy is today is very, very different from the, uh, the drugs that were tested um, as part of that research study. So what you'll find in the UK now is um, a form of hormone replacement therapy called body identical hormones. Um, and these are considered to be much, much safer for our bodies. Um, they are prescribed typically earlier in your menopause journey um, and they're monitored closely by doctors to ensure that the levels uh, remain safe for you. Um, so for the vast majority of women, um, hormone replacement therapy is now considered by the medical profession to be safe. If you do have an underlying um, hormone sensitivity or history of um, hormone cancer within your family, further um, consideration is required. But what's happened in the UK is there's been a very concerted um, effort by the medical community to encourage a re-evaluation by society of hormone replacement therapy so that women are able to access that treatment. Because you're right, that really is the only um, treatment in market at the moment for replacing the, the loss of progesterone lesion that occurs um, during our menopause transition. So those, uh, that option is in market today in both the US and uh, the UK. And there's another form of um, hormone treatment which is called um, bioidentical hormone treatment. And that is unregulated in both the US and the UK, but looks to um, match hormone levels more accurately with the consumer. So it's based, you know, it's, it's called bioidentical because it's looking to match you as an individual um, on what you are going through in terms of your hormone fluctuations. Um, the concern from the medical community is because it's unregulated, there's no reassurance for the consumer that they're getting the right dosage levels of progesterone and estrogen, and that puts them at risk. So within the UK and the US, it's not currently recommended as a um, medical protocol, but, but private clinics will offer it to women, and a proportion of women do choose to go down that route and, you know, some of them um, have, you know, very positive results, um, but it's not something that's actually um, regulated uh, for use by um, by GPs um, in the UK currently. So those are the medical protocols that are available. And as you say, there's quite a lot of innovation happening at the moment, which is really exciting, which will open up more opportunity uh, for um, individuals and, and also sort of in terms of future health and longevity for us. And then there's a whole raft of things we can be doing in terms of hormone management um, ourselves that don't have side effects. And the key focus for us as a business um, is around um, how you can use nutrition and whole food to better support your body as you transition through menopause. So looking to phytoestrogenic food where you've got plant-based estrogen, basically, so a very soft and gentle form of estrogen, um, in your food um, and in your supplementation can make a little difference. Looking at adaptogens, um, which again have a lot of uh, research behind them now as to their potential in supporting certain symptoms, whether it comes to cognitive function or um, rest and, and sleep. Um, and then the other thing we do as a, as a um, brand is we really advocate for learning how to better digest stress. Um, so what we do know about hormones um, is that they respond to external stresses as well as what's happening in the body. So if you're living a life that is stressed, if you're seeing those pressures at work, if you're living through a pandemic as we all just have, 
then your hormones are going to respond to that and your menopause symptoms are going to be worse. So looking to how you can adapt your lifestyle as you transition through menopause can also have a very positive impact on your menopause transition. So you're more homeopathic, am I correct? So our range is um, naturopathic rather than homeopathic. So it's a range of whole food lead powders um, that have been formulated by medical doctors and naturopaths and herbalists. And they look to kind of tap into those uh, qualities of whole foods. So whether we're looking at soybeans and cacao and moringa, um, they're packed full of um, the minerals and vitamins and botanicals that our bodies respond well to when we're transitioning through menopause. And they're often deficient in as a result of those hormone fluctuations. So doesn't it all come back to bio-identification? So think about it in a world where every woman should go through, just like we go and we get blood work from A to Z, Mm -hmm. they should go through uh, hormonal testing and individualized um, a pill or some sort of program, whether it's natural or or, um, medical, where they're getting the proper level of estrogen or progesterone in in their body. Um, and, and the other thing is, is and, and I'm going to tell you this from experience, uh, I was on hormonal therapy, um, and right after 10 years of, I started at 40, perimenopause, I think by 50 I was okay, mm-hmm. and I was diagnosed with breast cancer. Not blaming it on hormone therapy, but um, I was told because of having breast cancer, there were certain things I c- should not eat. One of them is soy. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, you know, is it just simple enough for a woman to say, ah, let me try this? Or should it always be more specific to their lifestyle, who they are, what their body chemistry is? No, it's a really good question. I think you're absolutely right. I think the feature of food and of supplementation is personalization. You know, we know that the gut biome has a massive part to play and that that gut-brain axis um, has a massive impact on our overall wellness and our our risk of disease. Uh, And similarly, as we transition through menopause, the way that our hormones respond, you know, those hormonal fluctuations of our sex hormones, but also what what else gets pushed out of whack. So we know that when progesterone and estrogen are fluctuating, it impacts on melatonin, it impacts on serotonin, it impacts on cortisol, in turn it impacts on your body's ability to produce stomach acid. So just those few um, impacts can have a, a, a massive effect on your propensity for future disease and health. So better understanding what's happening with your own hormones uh, can be critical. The biggest challenge that we face is the gender health gap. So we know a lot about menopause, but we don't know enough because the research hasn't been done by the medical community historically. When you look at um, funded research um, within the UK, just 2.3% goes to female health 
currently, and a very, very small fraction of that goes to menopause. So we don't really know enough about what actually happens as a result of these sex decline um, hormones uh, in our bodies. And similarly, when it comes to blood tests, it's quite a complex um, challenge for doctors because you need to... Um, test over a period of time um, because of the hormone fluctuations we described earlier in that sort of perimenopause roller coaster. Um, taking markers can be quite challenging and there's some debate around um, other protocols. So, for example, there's a, um, a testing um, protocol called the Dutch test, which actually uses urine as a marker of um, hormone fluctuations and uh, behaviour of the thyroid, etc. But all of them have limitations. So I absolutely agree that there should be a future where we can look to really understand what's going on within the female body. But much, much more research is required to actually have the level of sophistication, those testing tools to truly enable the insight, I think, that we would need to personalise protocols. How do we, as a female collective, affect that change? That is the million-dollar question, Grace. Uh, <laughs> I, mean, I think I get, <laughs> I get so frustrated, and you must feel this as well, because you're, you know, you're a serial uh, entrepreneur and a successful, you know, hugely successful in your field. And I get so cross that the amount of investment that goes into female health, female-backed business ventures, female-focused solutions is so tiny when we are 51% of the population um, because we know um, that if we can kind of affect the health of the world in this way, it's going to have a huge impact on the health of society. And yet the biggest problem is there's not enough money uh, going into these, these, these research areas. And that really is where it needs to begin. And I think what we as women can do is support each other a lot more explicitly. So I think it's really exciting that we're seeing, you know, even the two years that I've been in business, the growth of female-focused funds, for example, the growth of, of discourse around this disparity we see in, in the gender um, health market specifically. I think change is coming, and I think change will happen actually when women in positions of power step up to demand change. What we've seen in the UK, which I think is fascinating, is... One in three of the big newspapers here in the UK is now edited by a female. And the last two years, the story of menopause has constantly been in the column inches of those newspapers. And I think in part that's because the women in charge are transitioning to menopause too. And they're using that platform to ensure that the conversation isn't just there for World Menopause Day on the 18th of October each year. It's an ongoing conversation because change urgently needs to happen and they do have the opportunity to do that and if you you know you look to the boardrooms uh in the world today obviously we're still hugely underrepresented but there are more of us there now and it's our responsibility really as women at this stage of life to be using our platforms to make sure that the generation that follows doesn't have the same barriers we have just a few minutes left I'm just going to very quickly ask this question. Will we be able to address hormones and menopause in those that are transgender? Yeah, it's a really good question. So, I mean, I think um, individuals that um, don't identify with um, being uh, a woman 
transitioning through menopause can be an incredibly lonely um, experience. And as a sector or a life stage, um, we have to be incredibly careful that we don't accidentally exclude people that don't identify. And um, if you look to the wellness industry generally, I think it's a, it's a big problem. You know, it's a big problem in the sense that we don't see enough diversity in the wellness space. We don't see um, enough cultural differentiation in the wellness space. And if you're not careful, the kind of menopause category as it grows up will have the same issues. At the moment, if you look at menopause and you Google menopause, it's white, Caucasian, bendy, middle-class uh, women. Um, and there is no uh, depiction of same-sex couples. There's no depiction of transgender. There's no uh, depiction of people that identify as they. So we do need to do more to ensure that they're part of this discourse um, and that treatments are, are made available to them. And there's recognition that they will be transitioning to. And, um, it's a... It's a it's something where I think we all just need to be very aware of our ignorance uh, and very and very open to to staying open. Yeah, I I totally agree. I mean, it's a different world, and we just have to reach out to everyone um, that will experience anything like that, hormonal or otherwise. Um, Rebecca, I thank you so much for being on the show. Uh, I hope it has been a an education for those that are listening. Um, and I wish you a lot of luck on your journey with M Powder. Um, if you thank would you. like, we can post uh, a resource. If you send that to me, I will put that on um, on my Instagram page uh, that someone could reach you or talk to you or use the product and um thank you again i appreciate it thank you for tuning in to becoming the journey find us on wr710 iHeartRadio, or wherever you listen to your podcasts subscribe for free so you never miss an episode follow us on instagram at becoming the journey and please give us a five-star review on apple podcasts it really helps you have been listening to Becoming the Journey, hosted by Grace LaVray. Tune in weekly to hear more conversations that will inspire listeners along their life's journey. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.